Exodus in chapter 25. Verse 10 of the chapter. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it, and thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and thou shalt make two cherubim of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubim on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. And we do trust God will graciously bless the reading of his word again this evening. So in this final meeting we uh, are going to be thinking of the things that are there in the holiest of all that uh, smaller of the two compartments that made up the tented structure of the tabernacle. I, I might just say at this point that um, I hope you're not too disappointed if I didn't come. Uh, this very helpful model of course was already here. Uh, but I didn't come with slides, I didn't come with models. That's not because I don't think they're useful or helpful. But I just felt a particular uh, burden before the Lord that we would seek to try and get the pictures into our minds. I deliberately felt that we shouldn't be overly occupied with the physical format of the thing, though it teaches its lessons, but we want to be more uh, in tune with what it's teaching us about. The overall thought of the provision that God has made to bring a redeemed people into fellowship with himself. Uh, And though we've said it before, I don't mind saying it again, it is an absolute wonder of grace I don't think we can understand the reason why an all-sufficient, self-existent God would desire the fellowship of his creatures. Especially when those creatures are so fallible. And yet, maybe it is because in the sight of God, uh, who dwells in the eternal present, he sees all his love and devotion for Christ replicated and fulfilled in millions of others we know as creatures of time that uh, in a day to come we're going to be conformed to the image of God's son it's God's purpose to populate heaven with millions who are just like Christ he will always be supreme of course he will always be preeminent we will never be exactly like him he's the son of God But in all those delightful features uh, that are revealed to us in the word of God, God sees them in his purpose as now being replicated in the many sons who the captain of our salvation is bringing unto glory. And the only answer, I suppose, we've got to the question, why would God ever do this? 
three times at least four times is it in the Ephesian epistle to the praise of his glory to the praise of the glory of his grace and with that we bow and we worship and we acknowledge that God's thoughts and ways are far beyond ours so that's been our desire it's not so much to be involved uh, as an individual humanly speaking I love to be involved in the technicalities of the thing just what were those special boards at the corner of the structure like but interesting though that might be I don't know that it particularly warms the soul toward Christ and what we've been desiring to see is that how that in a very lovely way all these different articles uh, within the tabernacle something completely lost upon those who actually functioned in it now in this age we look back at it with the full Bible and we see all the provision God has made to bring uh, his redeemed into a place where he can commune with them that's what he was robbed of when Adam sinned God must have delighted to commune with man in the cool of the day and that fellowship was lost and broken and although now in the last Adam uh, the work has been done for all this to be restored it's wonderful that here on earth we can have a foretaste of what heaven will be and have communion with divine persons so we've been thinking about things in the sanctuary the lampstand, the table of showbread the altar of incense and uh, before or as we go into the holiest of all we need to think about that veil The veil was at one and the same time something prohibitive. It prevented priests from going beyond into the holiest of all. And yet at the same time it was permissive. Because if the veil hadn't been there, if there had just been one compartment in this tented structure, then they couldn't even have gone into the sanctuary. So the very fact that the veil was there, it permitted men to come as close as they possibly could to the divine presence. But then there was that, that barrier. Then there was that veil. And beyond the veil, of course, only the high priest went on the one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, which we will think a little about later. The veil must have been glorious. We've thought of it. We won't linger on it again uh, because we thought of it on a previous evening. But that, that tremendously heavy uh, curtain tradition amongst the Jews states that it was a hand breadth in thickness. Not a little curtain this thick, but maybe a hand breadth in thickness. So heavy was it. So full was it. And yet... As the glory of God dwelt in the holiest of all, it would have shone through the veil, not only casting the light of divine glory into the sanctuary, but bringing into relief all the wonderful needlework that particularly uh, involved the weaving of angelic form into the veil. In blue and purple and scarlet, these angelic figures were, were, were worked into it. And... Uh, when we think of that in conjunction with the uh, coverings of the tabernacle, which we haven't mentioned yet, the innermost of the four coverings of the tabernacle was again of fine linen, and it was woven with blue and purple and scarlet. And so the whole uh, of the sanctuary and the whole of the holiest of all was enclosed in curtains that were made of fine linen, woven with blue and purple and scarlet and with this great emphasis on angelic figures I think one of the most wonderful subjects in scripture on this theme is how that when the Lord Jesus was here he was not only at times the subject of angelic ministration but he was constantly the subject of angelic gaze I don't know exactly when the angels were created my guess would be day two, day three of creation created beings they are 
And we know from Job chapter 38 that as God set form upon the material he had called out of nothing, that that's when the morning stars, the sons of God as they're called there in Job 38, they sang. And they glorified God in the works of his hands in creation. So the angelic realm predated, by a few days, the creation of man. We know that one of those angels was um, Lucifer, the son of the morning. We know that one of those angels, Lucifer, if we read, if I read Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14 aright, that that angel, that angelic being, as God set order upon the heavenly realm, he gave specific duty to that angelic being. He was in the throne room of God. He is called the anointed cherub that covereth. And yet, I suppose it was the fact that when uh, the kingdom program that Matthew 13 tells us was from the foundation of the world, when the kingdom program was made known, presumably in some way announced, known about in the heavenly realm, when that kingdom program was made known, it seems that in the heart, I use the term, I don't know if an angel has a heart, but in the mind, in the thought, in the will of this angelic being, who, who would be better placed to exercise dominion over the works of God's hands. Surely I, as the anointed cherub that covereth, surely this should be under my sway. The Bible tells us that God in his purpose chose the man to exercise dominion. He's lower than the angels. But though he is lower than the angels, God bestowed upon him glory and honor and dominion here's this high angelic being and he has no glory of his own now you can read Ezekiel 28 and it tells us that every precious stone was thy covering he must have been absolutely glorious to look at but but only insofar as he was there in the throne room of heaven the light of the glory of that place Shining through those stones, every precious stone was thy covering, is the description. You ladies with gemstones perhaps in a ring or a piece of jewellery, you will know that as a strong light shines through it, it looks like the thing's alive, there's a fire within it. But take it away from that light, it's just a stone. There's no inherent glory in any of those gemstones. is an angelic being glorious in so far as he's connected with the throne room of heaven but he's no glory of his own and yet he sees glory conferred upon this creature made of dust he has no honor in the sense of other created forms giving their obedience to him all the animals were subject to Adam and yet it's clear from Isaiah chapter 14 that one of the desires of this angel was that, was that he would be exalted above the stars. That is, that the other angels would be made subject to him. He has no dominion, whereas all dominion over the works of God's hands is given to this man. And it seems that there is a pride and there is a jealousy that arises in the heart of this angelic being. And he says, I want that. I, I should have that. And Isaiah chapter 14, of course, tells us about the numerous I wills of that angelic being. I will, I will, I will. Very interestingly, one of the things that he says in Isaiah 14 is, I will ascend above the sides of the north. Now, it's a curious expression. Uh, and whatever it actually means, it is only used once again in our Bible. And that's in Psalm 48. That psalm which is all about the glory of the future city of Zion. Beautiful for situation. Where? In the sides of the north. 
And so it seems that that angelic being knew enough of the kingdom program which God had set in train as to say, I will be in charge of that. I will have dominion over that. Whereas, of course, God has said in Psalm 2, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So this is the background to that, that constant cosmic conflict that has gone on, that is revealed in the oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job. The, the, it's not a struggle, of course, on God's part, not at all. But God is unfolding his purpose, and he is, he is being assaulted at every turn by this wicked, angelic being, uh, into whose hands, ultimately, Adam surrendered all dominion. Remember Romans chapter 5 tells us, by one man, sin entered into the world. It entered. It was already there in the heavens. The writer to the Hebrews makes it clear that not even the heavens are pure in God's sight. That's where it all began. And when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world and death by sin and consequently he surrendered because he was the head of the race because God had put all dominion into his hands he surrendered all that into the hands of the wicked one and that's why the Bible tells us the whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one now why are we going into this detail when the subject is the tabernacle well the tabernacle deals with things in the heavens it's a facsimile of things in the heavens. So that not even, figuratively, the holy place, not even the holy place, is beyond the need for cleansing, purification, sanctification. It's one of the reasons why the blood is going to be applied to the altar of incense and to the horns that are upon that altar. And so in order that there can be the ground not just for occasional, not just for temporary fellowship between God and man, but so that it can be a settled condition. God has made provision that not only will the heavens ultimately be, be cleansed, but there will be a whole new order of things as a consequence of the work of Christ. Today then, you and I live in a world that is all in the hands of the wicked one. And yet God's purpose is, and it was at the beginning, that dominion would lie in the hands of a man. Well, today it doesn't. It lies in the, in the hands of an angel. Again, we go to the Hebrew epistle, chapter 2. And in verse 5 of that chapter, we read that God has not put in subjection to angels the age that is to come, of which we speak. Well, the age of which he's been speaking at the end of chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2 are a parenthesis. So the end of Hebrews chapter 1 has been speaking about the days of Christ's exaltation. Speaking about the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the age that is to come of which we speak, says Hebrews chapter 2. And the verse tells us, God has not put in subjection to angels the age that is to come. This age is in subjection to angels, but the one to come won't be. What that means then, in practical terms, is that between now, 2019, and whenever the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ begins, and it might only be seven or so years away, between now and then, there has to be a reversion of dominion from the hands of an angel to the hands of a man. You see that? Because God won't be thwarted. That's his purpose. And, and everything's going to be put into the hands of Christ, the man who has earned the right, not only by creation, but by redemption, to bear dominion in his hands. I believe that's what you read about in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation and in chapters 4 and 5 we're taken back into the throne room of heaven if we're correct about Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14 that's where the problem all began now we're going back to where the problem began and there's an angelic scene four living creatures 
four and twenty elders. And these angelic beings seem to have formed a, a sort of caretaker government since Adam relinquished his dominion there has now been an angelic opposition to the angelic hold upon the dominion of this world Ephesians 6, scriptures like that give you a little glimpse of this angelic conflict that's going on Daniel 12 gives you a glimpse of it the little letter of Jude gives you a glimpse of it angelic beings struggling one against the other now we come into that throne room of heaven again in Revelation 4 and there the Lord Jesus is being praised as the one who has creatorial authority to take over world dominion chapter 5 he's being praised for having the redemptive authority thou hast redeemed and, and so he is standing there now these, these angelic beings now recognize the time has come in the program of God for all authority to be put back into the hands of a man remember John wept at first because it seemed there was no man worthy to uh, take on that responsibility history is littered with examples of men and women who have been spoiled because power corrupts and as the saying goes absolute power corrupts absolutely well all power is going to be put back into the hands of that man and, and those angelic creatures in Revelation 4 and 5 recognizing the time has come for the reversion of dominion into the hands of a man they gladly cast their crowns of authority at his feet and the commencement of the universal reign and dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ angels are involved from the beginning of time until the end of time they're involved right now actually we don't tend to think of it in a definite way as we come and meet together as we have this evening but we're under angelic gaze right now Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 makes that very clear to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers might be made known by means of the church the manifold wisdom of God angels are looking they're beholding our godly order it's why you women have your heads covered you know that from 1 Corinthians 11 for this cause shall a woman have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels angels witnessed our baptism when outwardly we profess the lordship of Christ they witness our gathering together our acknowledgement of his headship they're an audience when we break bread together as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup ye do proclaim the death of him who is Lord until he comes who are we, who are we making that proclamation to? has to be an angelic audience doesn't it? can you see how those angels are learning and they're wondering I wonder what went through angelic mind when the Son of God who they alone have seen in all the splendor and glory of heaven they've seen the Son of God made flesh they were there to pronounce to the shepherds the wonder of the incarnation of Christ and the one who fills heaven with his glory is now lying in infant form in swaddling bands lying in a manger glory to God in the highest is what they proclaim more through the course of the life of the Lord Jesus they watched as he led by the spirit into the wilderness Matthew says to be tested as to his silent claim to messiahship they watched as he came under the attack of the adversary the angel and when those 40 days and 40 nights of testing were over angels came and they ministered to Christ these angels in their serried ranks in heaven they would cover their faces with their wings if indeed they were seraphim they're not all seraphim but, but we get the picture don't we that, that in heaven as these serried ranks of angelic beings behold the glory of Christ they fall on their faces, they bow and they acknowledge him and they worship him. And now they're coming to minister 
to a man who's weary. And that man is the Son of God manifest in flesh. It's a wonder, isn't it? I wonder more how they must have felt that day when finally the Lord Jesus was taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. And legions of angels were straining at the leash to come and release him. The order never came. You think what one angel can do when you read in the book of Revelation? One angel will see the dismissal of a quarter of the earth's population in a day to come. Think what legions of angels could have done. They were never called. And they witnessed the Son of God taken and by wicked hands crucified and slain, put to an open shame, his body taken down and buried. Angels and only angels saw him raised. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. I wonder what it meant to those angels. Like a celestial guard of honour. To stand there in Acts chapter 1 as heaven opened. To receive its best back into glory. And a man. A real man. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Ascended through the ranks of angels from the lowest to the highest. And he sat himself down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And these angelic beings have witnessed all of this and more. And they're wondering what's it all about. And they're learning what it's all about. By watching you and me right now. It's terrific isn't it? And then to think what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? That's our future, at least for the millennial reign of Christ, to be in charge of the administration of that very angelic realm. It's beyond imagination, isn't it? See, in that holy place, and in the holiest of all, everything was covered by the gaze of angels. Even to go through that veil... Again, I was just enjoying my own thoughts earlier. How each time the veil is mentioned, Matthew, Mark and Luke, each time that veil is mentioned, it's in connection with the centurion. And there's a centurion. The centurions in scripture are always spoken of well. The noble men. And there's a centurion. Uh, there's often a picture painted of this man as sort of being very rough and brutish, but there's no scriptural authority for that. The centurion at the cross was clearly a very thoughtful man. And Matthew points out that when the veil was rent, the rocks were rent, the graves were rent. There was an earthquake. There was tremendous upheaval. It's as though, it's as though the whole earth shuddered at the enormity of what was being perpetrated. Its creator put to an open shame and crucified. And the only thing unmoved, it seems, were the hearts of the men around him. And the, the scripture says, when the centurion saw the things that were done, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. I like to think that that's him looking at the supremacy of the sovereign. That's the purple that's in the veil. Whereas when you come to Mark, Mark records the death of the Lord Jesus. He says the veil was rent. The centurion was there. And then it says when he saw how he so cried out. He'd seen many a man die. He'd never seen a man die like this man died. This man was unique. This is the blue of the veil. This is the, this is the singularity of the servant of Jehovah. And he's, he's there in all the full dignity. Men have stripped him of everything else. But they can't strip him of his dignity. And when he, the centurion saw that he so cried out. Again he said truly this was the son of God. Luke would show us more perhaps. The fineness of the, of the linen. There's a lot of linen in Luke's gospel. And Luke records for us. The cry of the Lord Jesus, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the centurion said, sure, certainly this was a righteous man. 
Why? An unrighteous man couldn't commend his spirit into the hands of his father. This has to be a sinless man. He's dying as a criminal. He's, he's there to be executed. And yet there is absolutely not a shadow between him and his father. Father into thy hands I commend my spirit. And all the fineness and all the lovely sinlessness of the Saviour is brought out in Luke's account. We look for the scarlet therefore in John's Gospel. But when we come to John's Gospel there's no mention of the veil. And there's no mention of the centurion. But the scarlet of course is the glory, is the glory of perfect manhood. And John is showing us Right from chapter 1, the Lamb of God, he's showing us the one who's come to sacrifice himself. And so that's why John, I suggest, alone, the other writers don't do it. John says, I want to show you the sacrifice. And he calls our attention to the head that was crowned with thorns. He draws our attention to the inwards that were exposed by the spear. And he draws our attention to the legs that weren't broken. Now the only mention of legs anywhere in the New Testament is in John 19. Only John calls our attention to these things. What's he saying? He's saying, look at the, look at the head, look at the inwards, look at the legs. Where have you read that before? Exodus 12, isn't it? In the detail of the offering of the Passover lamb, it was to be parted in such a way, the head the inwards, the legs. What about the burnt offering of Leviticus 1 where everything is for the delight of God? The head, the inwards, the legs. And John says, I'll show you the man who is the perfect sacrifice, who fulfills all the sacrifices of old. This is the scarlet. This is the glory of the perfect man. And so all the beauty of the veil seen in the Sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the witness of the centurion, the rending of the veil, John's account of the way in which the Lord Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices that had gone before. That's the veil through which we enter into the holiest of all. Everything is of Christ. And of course, once we're in there, well, the high priest couldn't do what we're doing effectively. We're going in to have a look and see what all is in there. It was only a small compartment and he must have known what was there. But the high priest and the high priest alone could go in on the Day of Atonement. He went in three times, possibly four, on that one day. In and out. And that's very much the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16 and, and more of it in chapter 23. And... and it's that teaching of the Day of Atonement that is critical to an understanding of the Hebrew Epistle. Because at the moment, as far as the nation is concerned, the high priest has gone in and they're still waiting for him to come out. And unto him that look for him, he shall appear. It's not the rapture. The rapture never appears, I would suggest, in the Hebrew Epistle. It's the manifestation of Christ. Unto him that look for him the second time shall he appear without the sin question, apart from the sin question, unto salvation. The Day of Atonement. Very quick refresher. The Day of Atonement was necessary really because of the inadequacy of all that you see in this model. It was so small for the need of the people. One high priest who couldn't continue by reason of death so although the high priest should be able to help you in your infirmity, you imagine, you think it's bad enough getting an appointment with your GP. You try and get an appointment with this lad. You're one of a couple of million people. And he's one man. And suppose you ever did get an appointment with him. Remarkable. There's nothing he can do really to help you. You read on in the book of Leviticus, the law of the leper, where there's leprosy in a building. And you think, oh, this is all boring stuff. But it's got very important information in it because you'll see the inadequacy of the priesthood. If there's a fretting leprosy in the wall, if a man's got a scab or a boil or something like this, what does the priest do? The Bible says he comes and he looks at it. 
And you say, what else? Nothing else. That's all the priest can do, is look at it. He can't do anything about it. He can't heal it. He can just look at it. The inadequacy of the priesthood. The inadequacy of the animals. How many animals were slain in the course of this 400 year history of this tabernacle? And you've just got the stark scriptural statement. It was not possible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sin. So the great day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, was so that collectively the sins of a nation could be dealt with on that one day of the year. And, and uniquely the sin offering that was to be offered was made up of two goats, not one. One sin offering but two goats. And they cast lots upon the head of the goats and according to the way the lot fell one goat was for the Lord and it was summarily slain. The other goat was going to become the scapegoat. The blood of the goat that had been slain was now taken by the high priest solemnly and ceremonially. It was taken through the outer court. It was taken through the sanctuary and into the holiest of all. Only once he'd been in there with a, a golden censer full of coals and incense from off that golden altar and he had to fill the place with the smoke and the fragrance of that, that incense which we saw last night speak so beautifully of Christ and only when the holiest of all was completely filled with the smoke of that incense then he could go in and if it wasn't filled with smoke he died tradition has it that in the days when this ritual still went on even though the presence of God had long departed from them the people would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest so that if he died beyond the veil they could drag his body out that's serious isn't it you imagine if you were Israel's high priest and you've got all the ritual to go through and it's not oops I forgot to do that bit Time and again he's told, you will die. You will die. That certainly concentrate the mind, wouldn't it? All the solemnity of it, to go into the presence of God. And now that that first goat has been slain, he's carrying its blood in. What's he going to do? He's going to sprinkle it before and upon the mercy seat seven times. What for? Wasn't the righteous claim of God satisfied in the death of that victim? It was. Wasn't divine justice satisfied the moment that symbolically that goat perished on behalf of the nation? Absolutely. Why then is its blood taken in? And it's so that those inward and downward looking cherubim can testify to the fact that God is righteous now to forgive on the ground of sacrifice having been made. Isn't it wonderful that a God who by definition must do everything righteously wants it to be seen that he does everything righteously. What does Paul say about the gospel that we preach in Romans 1? Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. And it seems that these cherubim, wherever we read of them through scripture, and you'll have to follow it through yourself, but where you read of these, it seems they're not so much the custodians of righteousness, as though God's righteousness can be assaulted or something, but they bear testimony to the fact that God is righteous. You see, when you read of blood being shed in scripture, that's the point at which the claims of a righteous God are met, in the shedding of blood. But when you read of that shed blood being applied, it's to meet the need of man. So in Exodus 12, the blood was shed. There it is. It's in the, lintel of the, it's in the threshold of the door. That's the real meaning of the word basin. It's in the threshold of the door. Now unless faith and hyssop had applied that blood to the doorpost and the lintel, the firstborn would have perished. You can see how that the shedding of blood laid the righteous foundation for deliverance from judgment 
But unless the blood that's been shed is applied by faith, it'll never do the person any good. This is what we call the propitiatory work of Christ. It's talked about in Romans chapter 3. And the thought of the propitiatory work of Christ, John tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. It doesn't mean Christ has borne the punishment and the judgment for a whole world. It means that, that in the shedding of his blood, a foundation has been laid for God to righteously forgive a whole world if a whole world would repent and exercise faith. So those who are lost are not lost through any inadequacy of the work of Christ. It's sufficient for all. But only when faith lays hold of the work that Christ has done is it reckoned to our account. Hence, Peter writes, chapter 1, verse 2 of his first letter, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the Spirit unto obedience, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The thought is that when we got saved, all the efficacy of the shed blood of Christ that satisfied God is now reckoned to our account. So the blood was taken in and sprinkled before and on the mercy seat so that, so that there was evidence and witness could be borne by the cherubim God is righteous in forgiving the sins of his people. But that wasn't the end of it. The high priest having gone out again from the tabernacle there's now going to be the ceremony where he confesses the sins of the people on the head of the live goat. And the live goat is going to be taken away by the hand of a fit man into a land uninhabited. But, a most important detail in Leviticus 23, that is not in chapter 16, is this. That in between the high priest coming out, having sprinkled the blood of the first goat, and the sins being confessed on the head of the live goat and taken away, in between those two events, Chapter 23 tells us there is affliction of soul. Affliction of soul. There's a recognition on the part of the people. We have sinned and there's affliction of soul. We would call it today conviction of sin. What a graphic picture, isn't it? Of when we're preaching the gospel, we're preaching to the whosoever, there's not a person on earth who cannot be saved by the grace of God on the merits of the blood of Christ. But unless there's affliction of soul, unless there's an awareness and an admission of guilt before God that will cause them to reach out by faith and put their trust in Christ, that person will never have their sins forgiven. There has to be affliction of soul. And when they afflicted their souls, after that, the sins were confessed upon the head of the live goat. It was led away. The end of the day of atonement. It has a bearing on the nation today. In that when they took the Lord Jesus Christ and they crucified him, little did they understand it, but they were, they were slaying the first goat. The goat upon which the Lord's lot fell. And in the death of the Lord Jesus, on behalf of the nation, he brought an end to the old covenant under which they had languished and were condemned. He bore the curse with them. He terminated that old covenant. He laid the ground in his blood of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 that they are yet to come into the good of. The ground is all laid for it. The covenant's ready for the nation of Israel, but they're not ready for it. And the reason they're not ready for it is as a nation they have not yet learned affliction of soul. They're still arrogant, still proud. And the purpose of the seven year tribulation period, or more particularly, the purpose of the last half of it, the time of Jacob's trouble, is to drive that proud and impenitent nation back into the arms of their God. It's to break that proud spirit. It's not so much a punishment, but God cannot and will not forgive their sins until there's affliction of soul. And that affliction of soul will culminate in a day to come when as it seems as a nation they're about to be wiped out. They will turn their eyes heavenward and they'll cry to God in genuine repentance and they'll cry to him for mercy. And the man they last saw 
hanging in agony and shame, will appear in power and great glory. And with divine, divinely given illumination, that nation will look upon him whom they pierced, and they'll mourn for him as a father mourns for his only son. And they will look upon him, and they will say, with all the force of Isaiah chapter 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The judgment with a view to our peace was upon him. It's with his strike we are healed. And the nation will mourn. And there will be affliction of soul. And the moment there is. That's when God will say. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. As far as the east is from the west. So far have I removed their transgressions from them. Can you see the importance in the tabernacle of the day of atonement? Its principles lay the foundation for the gospel we preach today. Its principles lay the foundation for the restoration of the nation of Israel. God cannot and will not forgive until there is affliction of soul. But in the blood of the Lamb, in the blood of Christ, the foundation has been laid for God to do so righteously. That ark and the mercy seat upon it Though two separate items are never seen as being separated in Scripture. You recall that there was a day when the ark was brought back, having been captured by the Philistines, and it came back to Beth Shemesh, and the men of Beth Shemesh lifted the lid of the ark. 50,070 of them perished that day. And it wasn't so much for their impiety that they perished. But it was the fact that they exposed themselves to an unbroken law. The law demanded obedience or death. And they were sinners. And the moment they exposed themselves to the two tables of stone. That testimony that was within the ark. The moment they exposed themselves to it they died. But the lovely thing is. The ark is a picture of Christ. The law in its unbroken form. Two tables of stone. I wonder if there was four commandments on one and six on the other. Funny how we get used to tradition, isn't it? Five and five. But the Bible doesn't tell us that. Four were definitely Godward. Six were definitely manward. The first and the great commandment is that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul and heart and mind. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. And that law was hid in the heart of the perfect man. I love the fact that in Deuteronomy chapter 10 uh, I'll just read it to you it's in verse number 1 Deuteronomy chapter 10 as the two fresh tables of stone were given and we read at that time the Lord said unto me hew thee two tables of stone like unto the first and come up unto me into the mount and make thee an ark of wood and verse 3 says, And I made an ark of shit in wood, and hewed two tables of stone like unto the first. And he wrote on the tables, And I turned myself and came down from the mount, and put the tables in the ark which I had made. Twice over, an ark of wood. Why no mention of the gold? You say, well it's not the same ark. It is. Because the scripture says, there they be, as the Lord commanded me. And uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 9, you'll find that it's exactly the same ark. Isn't it wonderful, again, the precision of scripture. There's no mention of the gold in Deuteronomy 10. Because it's speaking now of Christ, not as the man who is ascended in glory. Shit in wood overlaid with gold. But it's speaking about him while he was here. The wood alone. And in the days of his flesh, the Lord, now listen carefully because religion might teach that the Lord kept the law on our behalf. That's not the thought at all. Not at all. But there was a man here who kept the law in every aspect of its detail. And in so doing, he proved that the law was honourable. One of the things that the Lord Jesus did while he was here was demonstrated that there is nothing wrong with God's design for man. 
There's nothing wrong with God's design for man. The Lord Jesus is a man. And as a man he perfectly satisfied God. As a man he kept the law and proved it to be honourable. The problem is not man, the problem is sin. And so as the perfect man, the law hid within him. A lovely picture of Christ as the ark. But then, remember it's got a crown upon it. It speaks about his present position, but it also speaks about security. Because on top of that ark, perfectly the same dimensions in width and breadth, upon the ark sat the mercy seat. That word is the same word for propitiatory in Romans chapter 3. A meeting place. It's a meeting place here in Exodus 25 because God said that's where I will meet with thee. But it's a propitiatory in Romans 3 because that's where God's justice and the finished work of Christ met together. And so the word has that double meaning. And there on the mercy seat the blood is made evident. Under angelic witness it's testified. The, the work has been done. The blood has been shed. The sacrifice has been accepted. And that crown around the ark is not only decorative, it secures the mercy seat. It'll never slip. It'll never come off. It speaks to us about the absolute assurance of your salvation and mine. And isn't it wonderful to think that there, in the silence and the quietness of the presence of God, there is a humble chest wood overlaid with gold beautifully expressive of the days of the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ now honoured and glorified and in his crowned position he holds secure that mercy seat that testifies to a finished work and is the absolute guarantee dear brother and dear sister that one day you and I will be in the glory with him